Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Wednesday, the day before the first uh, primetime televised hearing by the January 6th committee. We will have many previews of that. And afterwards on Friday, we're going to have a, a mega podcast just to give you guys a, a heads up on all of that, looking at the highlights and the lowlights of what happened. Uh, great piece by Mona Charon in uh, the Bulwark today. Uh, this is Liz Cheney's uh, moment. Uh, you know, forget about that primary. This will be the moment that will define her legacy and her position in the Republican Party. Amanda Carpenter also has a great breakdown of, of things to look for while you're watching that hearing. So we have a lot to talk about. Uh, we also, you know, continue to have this uh, this ongoing rolling debate about uh, about guns. And I would say rather, rather extraordinary results from the elections last night. Uh, and uh, to break all of this down, we are joined once again by my good friend David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, contributing writer at The Atlantic, co-host of the podcast Advisory Opinions and Good Faith, who just didn't get enough podcast work this week, and so I had to come <laughs> on this podcast. So welcome back, David. Well, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to come on, Charlie. Well, um, and by the way, your, your most recent book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Uh, of course, uh, David also served as uh, as an army lawyer in the JAG Corps during the Iraq War. So kind of an update on the divided we fall America's secession threat. We talked <laughs> about that when the book came out. You're a much more optimistic guy than I am these days. But my, my gut sense is that in terms of the centrifugal forces of, of our republic, they've all gotten more intense since you wrote yeah. the book. What do you think? I Oh, uh a hundred percent correct. Um, Steve Hayes and I did a, a dispatch live last night where we, it's funny that you bring up the book because we kind of revisited the thesis of the book because Steve had been having a very similar pessimistic feeling. And so <laughs> we explored that at some length. And here's the way I put it last night. If present trends continue, that's the the big, the if, if present trends continue, I'm to the point where I'm expecting a very, very significant constitutional crisis. Now, there are some indications that present trends may not continue, and, and we can certainly mm -hmm. talk about things. But the one thing that I am seeing right now is that political participation is in an interesting way narrowing. In other words, that fewer people are uh, really diving into hyperpartisanship, but intensifying. And so if, if you're talking about the day-to-day -day business of politics, there is an increasing, ever-increasing sort of level of animosity and intensity. That is deeply off-putting to an awful lot of people, but they're not so much resisting that as checking out. See, that's exactly what, you know, I was going to say, I was going to use that phrase as well. And is if normal Americans who want to go about their lives uh, are becoming more disconnected with politics. They just don't want it in their heads. And as a result, ceding the playing field to the those who are filled with passionate intensity. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And I see this all around me just in the real world where friends I have who have been staunch conservatives, staunch Republicans their entire lives, they're still Republicans, but they've really pulled back. Uh, I was talking to a doctor not too long ago who, again, very staunch Republican guy, um, the kind of guy you want involved in Republican right. politics. And he had said, I'm just done. I, I've turned off the news. I have deleted social media apps. I just don't get involved at all anymore. And 
He talked about how his blood pressure was lower, how he was a better husband and father. And you hear that and you think, well, good for you, kind of bad for us because, you know, we need decent people involved in politics. But what's happening is the hyperpartisans make you pay such a price for that engagement. And I'm not talking just if you're somebody who has a Twitter following or a public voice or a column or whatever. Of course, you're going to get all of that incoming. I'm talking about if you're just, you know, Brian, the accountant, and you post something on Facebook that your uncle really doesn't like and just be prepared for the vitriol or be prepared from the vitriol from some of your high school classmates or your college classmates. And it's like getting hit with an electric shock. You know, people post yeah. opinions or they push back mildly against sort of the base politics and it's they get shocked with a, you know, a verbal or rhetorical cattle prod. And they don't need that in their lives. They don't want that in their lives. And so they kind of back away and it leaves the field for an ever-increasing um, ever radicalizing base. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think you have this large number of people who are just exhausted by it. And it's not just the polarization, not just the partisanship. It's the bad faith stupidity yeah. of much of it. The, 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 the venom out there, which I know you, you are on the receiving end of and have been for years. I mean, do you have these moments where you and your wife look at each other and go, why, why, why? I mean, is, is it worth it? You know, we're, we're up here on the mountains of Tennessee. Can't we just like, like pull the plug? You know? <laughs> well, we're both too stubborn for that. Okay. So, <laughs> good, good. Yeah, we're much too stubborn for that. But, you know, I totally understand if, you know, my job is to, to write uh, and, and, and speak about what I think and believe. Yeah. But if your job is, you know, you're a, a controller for a car dealership or you're you know, you're a doctor, your job is, you're a lawyer, your job is, you name it, the political engagement side of it, if it is harming the rest of your life, then why are you going to get engaged? You're going to feel the pain yeah. of engagement, yeah. but you're not going to necessarily see any results from your engagement um, because you don't, you, you, you may not have a big audience or whatever. You're just going to get all pain. And when you're getting all that pain, you just, it's easy to just say the I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Well, there's also the weight of futility, which is yeah. that at, at a certain point, the problems are just too big and there's nothing that you can do, or at least you feel that there's nothing you can do about it. So it's one of the reasons why we don't sit around obsessing about the fact that the sun will go dark someday because you know what? It's a long way away and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just not going to worry about it. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was reading a story about some looming environmental disaster and there was that voice in my head saying, you know, um, this is not something you should focus on because you can't do anything about it. And it's just, it's just too big. So I, I just get that sense that sometimes it's the enormity. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm using that word, right. It is, things can be so horrible, but also so large yeah. that you do step back from it. So I think all those things work together. So there's kind of a, a dark beginning of the, for the podcast. So please yeah. don't turn this off. So I really want to talk about some of the stuff you've written about guns and gun culture, because um, I have uh, also become obsessed with this. And, and you explain things that I am still struggling to understand. And I want to make this clear that I, I am still struggling to understand many of the things, including the idolatry of the gun culture. But let's talk about what happened last night, because it, it, this, was, this was rather extraordinary. Again, in San Francisco, the very progressive DA 
Chesa Bodin, was thrown out of office. You know, San Francisco, arguably one of the most liberal cities in America, votes 60-40 to throw out one of, to throw out of office one of the most progressive prosecutors in America. Rather extraordinary. Also a centrist slash uh, kind of quasi-conservative candidate uh, for mayor in Los Angeles, uh, tops the ballot, uh, gets more votes than the than the Democratic uh, progressive candidate. In races that are dominated by discussions of violent crime, homelessness, this sense that things are falling apart. So I wanted to get your take on what's going on in San Francisco. I mean, it's I mean, I, I understand that all politics is local, but this feels like this also captures something in the national political mood as well. Yes. Now we're going to move to the more optimistic phase of the program, Charlie, okay. because Thank God. one of the things I was just about to say as we were winding down that first conversation is, however, there is some reason for hope because when voters are given a vehicle for a moderation, many voters are seizing it or taking that opportunity. Uh, you know, and, and San Francisco is a prime example here. So this this uh, recall of the DA is coming on the heels of the recall of three members of the school board. And what's really significant about this, this is not conservatives rising up in San Francisco, right? No, it is not. Yeah. This is progressives policing their own movement. And this is how change, positive change is going to happen here. It's when people on the left police the left, when people on the right police the right. And this is progressives policing their own movement. Um, a radical fringe had gotten ahead of the rest of the population. And the results were terrible. You know, the results were terrible in the school board. You know, I remember talking to somebody who was involved in organizing the school board recall. And she told me that while the school was spending money renaming schools, uh, yeah. while the school board Jeez. was spending money renaming schools based on ridiculously flawed history, and you can just look that up to see sort of what a kind of a clown show process that was, they were doing FOIA requests to see what the plan was to reopen schools in COVID. And literally, there were no plans. There, there were no responsive documents. <laughs> so they were really focused on sort of this uh, far-left culture war stuff and not at all focused on the core business of the school itself. And so the recall was a landslide. And similarly, you know, I've talked to people in San Francisco, solid progressives who tell me harrowing things yeah. about the lawlessness in the city and people who never thought in a million years they would ever consider buying a gun who've bought a gun because of the incredible sense of insecurity within the city. And, you know, it's not everywhere. And a lot of people say, hey, look, I'm fine there. But it's in enough places to where it's created a real sense of lawlessness. And what happened, the, the people who stepped forward to initiate the recall election, in other words, the folks who, you know, stuck their head above the foxhole, who got an enormous amount of incoming called white supremacists and all of this, from the far, far left in San Francisco, they created a vehicle. They sort of opened the door to a bus that regular average ordinary folks who are sick of radicalism could jump on board. And they did, and they made a real difference. And, and I also put in that category, the Georgia primary. Yeah. Uh, this was one where, you know, unlike many other primaries where you had multi-candidate primaries, like in Ohio, you had, it was really one-on-one, -on -one. you know, you had Raffensperger versus uh, what Jody Heiss, you had Kemp versus Purdue. And 
it was one-on-one between solid Republicans who want to govern in a conservative way versus MAGA Trumpists who want to f- uh, double down on the election steal theory. And, you know, normal Republicans didn't just won, they won resoundingly. So again, you had a vehicle there for normalcy, so to speak, and people got on board the vehicle. And so that, that does give me some hope if you stick your head above the foxhole that and, and sort of set a leadership example, some folks will follow. And nobody did that more than Brad Raffensperger. I, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I keep coming back to that because I don't know anyone who uh, a year ago thought that Brad Raffensperger was anything other than dead man walking. I was, exactly. I was, actually, I was actually surprised that he was running for re-election at all, given what was going on. I give him so much credit. I do too. For yeah. that. I mean, because we've seen a lot of people who've said, I'm against Trump and and then I'm out of politics. You know, I'm against Trump and 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 for a lot of good reasons they think they now have zero future in the Republican Party. And and I don't I don't blame people for that at all. You know, that's a it's a hard, hard, hard road when your entire party sw- seems to swing against you. But Raffensperger, man, he stuck it out and he won. And, you know, I think there's a lesson there, perhaps. And and we'll see what happens with Liz Cheney. Um, you know, I don't know if people are getting more optimistic about her election at all or not, but she's sticking it out. She's saying, I'm I'm not backing down one inch and I'm running for re-election. And that's what we got to have. Well, losing with dignity and losing with your pride intact, you know, is something. I, you know, we live in this political culture where whatever it takes to win, you'll say anything, you'll make any compromises because it's all about winning, right? It, you know, Liz Cheney, you know, is kind of a throwback and saying, okay, you know what, I may lose my seat for this, but I'm going to to do this. And and I, 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 I agree with Mona when she says, you know, this, this is going to be her moment. I think it's going to be inspirational, you know, um, because I think it's very unlikely that she's going to win. But I, I mean, I, I, I just think it's, it, it is tough. So here's a, a couple of other, you know, minor green shoots. I certainly don't want to overplay this. Um, right. But, but last night was also, you, you were talking about, you know, uh, you know, policing your own side, you know, that, that uh, progressives are apparently willing to do that in, in California. Well, on the Republican side, Georgia being an example, but also in California, uh, young Kim, uh, who is a sort of a centrist conservative incumbent, fought off a, a MAGA challenger in South Dakota, Dusty Johnson, had a, like a super ultra MAGA candidate. He won. Um, also in California, Representative, is it Valadio? You see, this is why I shouldn't be doing this. This is what happens, Charlie, when you mainly read the news instead of watch the news. Okay, no, exactly. So he (laughs) he voted to impeach Trump, and yet he's Mm -hmm. advancing to the general election. And uh, in New Jersey, Trump once wanted to have a primary challenge against, uh, you know, Representative Chris uh, Smith, but he won easily. So uh, around the country, it was certainly not a particularly impressive night for uh, Trumpians. So maybe that's a, a minor green shoot. Okay, so I want to switch gears to talk about guns because uh, you, you've written about guns. I, I have a piece about this uh, this this whole weird in, in, inversion. It, it does strike me that there's something kind of ironic going on here. That so you know I wrote this morning. You know it, it's 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 uh, it's the crime stupid uh, when, when you look at what's happening in many of these races. And, you know, the concern about violent crime in the cities. At the same time, the Republican Party, the party of law and order, the pro-life party, appears to remain generally uninterested in doing anything about mass murders. 
And I continue to be, I would say, shocked but not surprised by some of these poll results. I'm sure you saw this as well, the CBS poll that found that 44% of Republicans say that mass murders are basically the, we have to accept as part of a free society, that mass murder is the price of freedom. As you and I both know, David, this is not a position that Republicans take anywhere else. During the last several decades, Republicans uh, never argued that we ought to accept attacks from Islamic terrorists as the price of freedom. They, they don't believe that urban violence, street crime is an acceptable price for living in an open, tolerant society, right? They've never hesitated to support legislation that limits the rights of violent criminals or to strip, you know, n- you know, national security threats of their civil liberties. And conservatives, you know, uniformly insist that we prioritize the right to life over other personal freedoms. But this is all reversed when it comes to mass murder by domestic gunmen. And well, I, I, I can't gloss over that. That's that irony there. This goes back to something that I, I wrote a few days ago about the difference between gun rights and sort of this gun fetish or gun yeah. idolatry is that the the culture of defiance around guns. Uh, is just out of control. <laughs> it's out of control. Now, it is also true at the same time that there are a lot of things that are proposed when mass shootings happen that have not been proven to have any effect on mass shootings. And so there's this sort of, we go through this kind of kabuki theater process where there is a, pro- a, a pro- set of proposals in response to mass shootings that have been studied and don't really have anything much uh, any much much impact on mass shootings at all um, that are these things are typically proposed. But then at the same time, there isn't really, aside from the standard lines about arming teachers or one entry point, hardened targets or whatever, you don't get any real creative counter proposal. If you say, okay, wait a minute, uh, uh, bans on assault weapons and high capacity magazines, as Rand Corporation has demonstrated, mm-hmm. um, doesn't, there's no conclusive evidence that it has any effect on mass shootings, but we still have the crisis. What do you want to do about it? And then often the response is sort of vague, well, something, something, mental health, something. And while we do need to deal with mental health in this country, we absolutely need to do something about mental health. Often there's no actual proposal behind something, mental health, something. And then when you come up with creative new proposals that are exactly focused around the mass shooting issue. And this is the, you know, gosh, I, I'm like the crazy guy in the campus quad who won't stop shut, who won't shut up about something, uh, talking about, that's me talking about red flag laws. Then there's this reflexive defiance, not from everyone. Thankfully, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio last year introduced bipartisan red flag legislation. There's some serious negotiation going on with Uh, with Senator Murphy right now and uh, Cornyn and Murphy are in serious negotiations. But a a lot of the gun rights community is just reflexively against it, just reflexively defiant, even though the red flag concept fits within the exact kinds of gun control or uh, gun control that even gun rights proponents have supported in the past. It is behavior based. It's based on what somebody does. Well, exactly. And that's the part where you realize you're sort of in a post-rational you know, set of arguments here, because if you focus on mental health, then what? Then 
uh, you're clearly implying that then we ought to try to keep these guns out of the hands of people who have, you know, mental illness who might pose a threat. But then that requires more robust background checks, including including uh, juvenile records. And it includes red flag laws. Right. I mean, otherwise, what what do you what is the connection? You have to connect the dots. Right. You know, it's like, okay, right. And this is the argument, of course, is that law abiding citizens should not have their rights infringed, that we ought to focus on people who are criminals or mentally ill. But then they oppose the measures that are the ones you're describing that are specifically designed to keep the guns out of the hands of criminals and the mentally ill who might pose a threat. Yeah. And I think this is really important to drill down on because we have uh, National Institutes for Justice uh, funded a study of 50 years of mass shootings. Now, think about that, Charlie. There's been 50 years of mass shootings. So we had enough mass shootings to fund a a study of 50 years of these horrible incidents. And here's what they found. They found in the majority of circumstances, the killers leaked their plans before the killing. Hmm. Think about that. In a majority of circumstances. So this is what the red flag law is aimed at. And it also, by the way, deals with two other kinds of of terrible gun violence. Suicides, uh, because part of the test is, are you a threat to yourself or others? And also domestic violence. This is a category where, you know, you can see somebody unraveling, say, in the course of a custody dispute. And the thing about red flag laws is they actually connect with a longstanding, they're they're very similar to a different kind of longstanding protection order that we have in this country, and that's domestic violence protection orders, where people can even be barred from their own families when they demonstrate that they're a threat. And this is something we've had in have utilized in our country for a very long time. And I fail to see why it is more of a burden to be barred from a gun than to be barred from your own wife and kids. And and so in this circumstance, if you're showing a level of danger that's not that dissimilar from kind of the levels of danger that 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 create domestic violence protective orders, um, you're showing a level of danger, why should you have a gun? And, and I think that, you know, making that argument, just going past the activists and taking that argument straight to the American people, if you've exhibited your threat to yourself and others, why should you have a gun? What is the argument for you possessing a gun? And, and at that point, you know, I really think you've got some hope to make some change here. Well, I mean, as, as you wrote the other day, the gun culture that you grew up in put responsibility on par with liberty, Right. You know, yeah. the true purpose of owning a gun is to secure and protect your family, not to frighten and intimidate your neighbors. And I think this distinction yep. you make between self-defense and defiance is important, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, even scriptures make multiple allowances for self-defense, but defiance is different. It's designed mm-hmm. to implant fear, not save lives. That's what I want to get to now, because you wrote something yesterday, America's violent heart. And you said to reform our country, we have to understand our culture. I want you to try to explain this culture to me, David. But let's do that right after this. There's only one week left for Genyacel's summer clearance sale. Now save over 60% off Genyacel's most popular package at Genyacel.com. Order today and get Genyacel's dark spot corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark sunspots free. 
the GenuCell dark spot corrector uses special peptides to visibly reduce the appearance of dark spots, age spots, and yes, even sunspots that summer leaves behind. GenuCell has been family owned and operated since day one, and they know the times are tough for all of us, and that's why they haven't and they will not raise prices on their world class skincare, and the results are real. Millions of Americans are in love with their products. GenuCell guarantees results or your money back. And sign up for GenuCell's best-in-class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off your order and complimentary gift set. Go to GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. That's GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. And enter Bulwark at checkout for extra summer savings. And right now, Every most popular package includes GenuCell's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Go to GenuCell.com slash Bulwark, GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. Okay, we are back with David French, uh, who has been writing extensively about this. You wrote in The Atlantic a kind of a personal story, something that happened a few years ago. Yeah, I'm going to read you what you wrote. Because of the threats against my family and because I don't want to be dependent on a sometimes shockingly incompetent government for my family's security, I carry a weapon. My wife does as well. We are not scared. We are prepared. And that sense of preparation is contagious. Confidence is contagious. People want to be empowered. That's how gun culture is built, not by the NRA and not by Congress, but by gun owners, one free citizen at a time. So you're contrasting this with mm -hmm. the the defiance and the idolatry of the gun. So you wrote about in order to understand what's happening, we have to understand America's violent heart and our culture. So yeah. talk to me about that. What, what What is America's violent heart? And is that yeah. part of American exceptionalism? Are we exceptionally violent in some ways? Yes. The answer is we are <laughs> exceptionally violent. Um, you know, Jonah, Jonah Goldberg, my, my colleague has talked to, has often said that we talk about American exceptionalism in the wrong way, that when you use the term American except, exceptionalism, we often think that means America is exceptionally great, though, yes. of course, there are lots of great things about America, but really it means America is exceptional. It's just different. It's, it's hard to find a comparable culture. And one of the ways that America is different, because we always, you know, when, when gun violence occurs, we always go over to Europe and we say, well, look at Europe. Europe has much lower gun ownership rates. It has much lower homicide rates. It's just, why can't we be like Europe? And going back to before the founding of the country, in other words, going back to the colonial era, the U.S. has just been substantially more violent, just substantially more violent. And, and really, if you look at rates of violence in the U.S., the comparable countries are not in Europe, they're in Latin America, hmm. which is also the case, by the way, for religion. America is much more religious than Europe. Europe is a religious wasteland by comparison to the Americas. And so America has, since its founding, had profoundly more homicide than European countries, just profoundly more. And so what ends up happening there is that, you know, I think what we have to understand that our, um, that when it comes to criminal violence, we have a cultural issue that a lot of other countries don't have. And, 
And so that means a, a few things. One is, uh, you know, and one of the interesting findings is that the homicide rates are, there's just no correlation in America between homicide rates and rates of gun ownership. Now, there is a correlation with suicide rates. There is for suicide rates. But there's no correlation between homicide rates and gun ownership. So what, what does that suggest? It suggests that what you have in America is a criminal, uh, a criminal culture in America that's very, very violent, incomparable in some ways to, say, South America, where you'll have much lower rates of gun ownership than even the United States, much lower, but very high rates of violence, sometimes higher rates of violence than in the U.S. And so it's just too, what this means is it's just way too simplistic to say more guns means more crime and fewer guns equals less crime. That's just way too simplistic. That's not the American experience. That's not the experience outside of a country, say, a lot of countries. Um, in fact, you know, Russia has a higher rate of homicide than we do with much lower rates of gun ownership. Hmm. Also, this extraordinary rate I did not of know criminal that, violence. It's interesting. Yeah, I know. It's fascinating to, yeah. to do sort of a tour around the world. It, when you do have extraordinarily high rate of criminal violence, it, it shows why armed self-defense, in other words, this idea that I need to own a gun to protect myself is a rational thing. If you have no, if you have no real problem with criminal violence, then gun ownership feels weird. You know, that's one of the things why it feels so weird to Europeans to see Americans, you know, who are so have such a zeal for self-protection. It doesn't cross their mind that they're going to face violence. But, you know, in many, 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 many neighborhoods in America, that's an omnipresent reality. And that's why I've, I've said I wish the gun debate would feature more people who face threat to their lives without the wealth or resources to hire security. Um, you know, our, our nation's governmental and cultural elite is pretty prosperous and they're less likely to have experienced real danger, especially real danger without resources. And this is a reason why a lot of Americans do recoil from a lot of different kinds of gun control measures, but also at the same time, it's a reason why millions of Americans understand that there are a categories of people who by their behavior mm -hmm. have indicated they should not possess a gun. And that's where I think that the real room for reform exists. So explain this to me though, this, this linkage between radicalized Christianity and, and the gun cult and, you wrote a piece against our gun idolatry. Yeah. Connect those dots to me because idolatry would seem to be the, the exact thing that the church would um, resist. <laughs> In fact, many of the churches have embraced it. So can you explain that to me? Again, this is part of the, what would Jesus do? Jesus is probably not going to, you know, strap on a Glock. Um, right. he, he wasn't going to bring an AR-15 into the temple. So what is the connection there? What's the nexus? Well, well, the nexus here, I think, is this sort of um, Christian nationalism that is extraordinarily defiant, almost revolutionary in spirit, um, and a also a sort of sense of looming deep persecution. And so it, there's this kind of internally contradictory sort of spirit within a lot of Christian nationalism. And one is we are strong enough to take our country back. So you've heard, Charlie, I know you've heard that rhetoric yeah. uh, a million times. We're going to take our country back. But at the same time, we're weak enough to where they're going to criminalize going to church. So wait a minute. Hold on. 
are you so powerful that you have the ability to take the country back? Or are you so weak that you're going to have churches shuttered by the power of the state and widespread, massive Roman-style persecution? Which is it? <laughs> but there's this both this sense of power and a sense of vulnerability working simultaneously. So who are they going to take the country back from? Um, the drag queen story hour people? I mean, what what, I what is the focus? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the focus often is, well, and I heard this in my debates with uh, Eric Metaxas, it's the Democrats. The Democrats threaten the very existence of the country. So if you have, as Eric Metaxas said to me in both of our debates about Donald Trump, if Joe Biden wins, America is over. America is over. <laughs> and so you have this kind of messaging that is going out in a powerful way to parts of the Christian Republican base that your country is hanging by an absolute thread. And there's going to come a time when you might have to take up arms to defend your nation, your families, not from an intruder breaking into the house, which is a perfectly fine use of weapons for self-defense, but from the government itself. And, and you began to see some of this when armed protesters were, um, you know, protested outside state houses around the country to protest, um, you know, protest coronavirus restrictions or to protest, to mount election protests when you have armed protesters outside of the homes of public officials. That's where you see this. And, and you know, I called this a spirit of defiance. And it's, it's in some ways, it's different from that this strain has always existed in the gun rights movement. And sure. my friend Charlie Cook took, took me to task for uh, in the National Review for implying that this or stating that this was a problem that was new. He was saying, no, this has always been there. And I, I recognize it's always been there, but I say it's getting worse. I think it's getting more prominent. Uh, the question I've always had, as I've been, you know, like you, I've, I've heard this for 30 years, this argument that, uh, you know, the, the gun rights is the is the bulwark of American liberty and you have to have the gun in order to fight against government tyranny. And the question I've always had in my mind is, well, who are you intending to shoot? You know, when you show up, who are you going to shoot? You're going to shoot the cops. You're going to shoot security guards. You're going to shoot uh, soldiers. You're going to shoot government agents. They, they never connect it. But the problem is, is that if you marinate long enough in that kind of rhetoric and that kind of culture, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, that's a key point here, is that if you're marinating in a spirit of violent defiance, you're marinating in a spirit that says, this government is an imminent threat to me and my family, then you can't be surprised when things like January 6th happen, right? It's the logical extension of the argument. And that's my point. It's long been the case. It's like the NRA, they'll say, Molon Labe, come and take it. The, yeah. the NRA has always been quite defiant about the gun rights themselves. But what I'm saying now is the defiance is extending beyond the gun rights, that the gun is your symbol of defiance to a whole host of public policies, including, or a whole host of public events, including a lawful election including lawful pandemic restrictions that are subject to both judicial review and election, you know, you can toss out the politicians who've put in restrictions you don't like. And that's the defiance that worries me. It's not the defiance that's always been there that says, you can't take my gun. I'm used to hearing that. But the defiance that says, 
you can't steal this election and here's my gun to do, to back well, that that's, up. That's right. And, and, and you know, this is relevant uh, as you and I are speaking in, about, uh, in the last 10 minutes. Uh, th this story just crossed the wire. Man with weapon detained near Brett Kavanaugh's yep. home. He allegedly told police he wanted to kill the Supreme Court justice. And and I and I have to say this is uh, this is alarming under any circumstances. But uh, here in Wisconsin, as you know, last week we had a retired judge who was murdered by a gunman who had a list of other uh, public officials, uh, Democrats and Republicans that were on his list. And you and I both remember when political assassinations were um, were more or less common. I mean, there was certainly were you know a cloud over our our, our culture. You know, maybe we've been fortunate up until now because all the things that we have been discussing, you know, do our sort of our warning flags, our red flags that this sort of thing can happen. OK, so, David, I want to make this pivot because you you, you mentioned, you know, um, the the insurrection, uh, January 6th, what happened. And uh, tomorrow night, of course, so we have the first hearing and I want to get your preview, your take on that. Let's do that right after this. It's here. This could be the most important moment of your financial life because many experts are predicting a recession bigger than 2008 that may be coming, which means you could lose more than 20% of your wealth in a snap. So how are professional investors preparing for this economic cataclysm? Well, that's a trick question because they already have. They've secured their wealth with what some call history's most dependable investment. And I'm talking about fine art. In other words, paintings by legends like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. And thanks to a game-changing company called Masterworks. Why is this so amazing? Why should you be interested in this? Well, because you can finally get in for a fraction of the price and still reap the benefits. They've handed investors over 30% returns three times now. If you're serious about building wealth, don't wait. And now you can get priority access by using this special referral link. It's masterworks.com promo code Bulwark. That's masterworks.com promo code Bulwark. Before deciding to invest, carefully review important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Okay, we are back with David French, senior editor at The Dispatch, contributing writer at The Atlantic, co-host of the podcast, Advisory Opinions and Good Faith, who returns to this podcast. So uh, tomorrow night, we have primetime hearings, January 6th. I am trying not to have irrationally exuberant expectations. Um, but I do, I have been impressed by the way the January 6th committee has gone about, uh, presenting the evidence. What are you looking for? And well, let's start with that. And then I'll ask you later whether it will make a difference. So what are you looking for tomorrow night? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for what I'm mainly looking for is I want to see the facts laid out. In other words, and not just the facts of January 6th itself, because I think the really the most important aspect of what the commission is doing is looking at all of the lead up to the 6th. I feel like we have a pretty good grasp on the events of the riot itself. But the thing that's been so alarming to me is understanding how fully developed was the plan to steal the election. Yeah. That what we're talking about is a plan that was so fully developed that all Mike Pence had to do was say yes. And, so you know, and, and if, yeah. if Pence had said yes, then I shudder to think what would have happened to our country. But that's what's so critical to me is understanding how 
the January 6th riot and insurrection itself was fitting within a larger plan that was January 6th wasn't a one-off event. It was the culminating, right. It was going to be the culminating moment of a plan that was unfolding. And so I want to hear all of those facts and then, and even the commission doesn't even have to, to, to do this necessarily. Let's apply the law to the facts. Cause I want to know about criminal possible criminal liability here. I know a Georgia grand jury is looking at Trump's efforts to overturn the election in Georgia, but I want to know all of the facts and then we can apply the law to those facts. But I, I, I want the narrative. Yeah, I think that that is crucial. I think that the narrative telling the story, I mean, obviously, they also have to show the pictures. They have to convince Americans that this is an ongoing threat. But, uh, you know, if you tell the story that you're describing here, it all all of these strands go back to Donald Trump. I mean, I've, I've, I have this image in my head of this giant spider web and this, the center of it. It all flows from from Donald Trump. I know there's a debate out there like, don't be too Trumpocentric here. You know, you need to go after, you know, the various other you know actors here. But ultimately, this is all about Donald Trump, the one man that if he would have conceded the election, if he would not have pushed the big lie, none of this would have happened. Everything flows from his absolute refusal to acknowledge his defeat. And there's no other narrative that makes any sense. Right. I mean, <laughs> this all is ultimately at Donald Trump's feet. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. This is, and and look, he had hangers on. He had people who fed him. He had people who stoked his paranoia. But this is this really rests at his feet. And and so what I want to see is just a, the facts laid out in a way that even Republicans who are people of good faith who are in denial, they're in denial. That if they're exposed to these facts, and if is a big question because, you know, Fox isn't going to cover it prime right. time. They're going to keep a Tucker. Yeah, the, the people who most need to watch this are not going to be watching it, unfortunately. Right. Exactly. So, you know, if they're exposed to this reality, they would say that's serious. That man, A, may need to be prosecuted. Again, we'll, we'll apply the law to the facts. Or B, shouldn't be within miles of power ever, ever, ever again. And because the thing that I've seen... Mm. is that an awful lot of people uh, where I live in a very, very red part of America, they just don't know. No, they don't. Uh, they have no idea. They have no idea. But will they be watching? Will this, I, mean, I, I agree with you, but I guess the thing is that here we are now in June of 2022, and you have seen Donald Trump's behavior for a very long time now. If you have not yet come to the conclusion that this man should never be allowed back into power, if you haven't come to that conclusion by now, what is it going to take? Or has your mind been so totally either broken or closed that you're impervious to any new information? What do you think? I, I'm, I'm trying to now, imagine that, I, that person who last week thought, well, you know, it wouldn't be terrible if uh, Donald Trump came back into office and that next week's going to go, yeah, that would be a terrible idea. Yeah. You know? I think I think it happens with different people at a different pace. So Obviously, Trump's grip is slipping at least somewhat. You know, the, he took you think so? two massive losses in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, just massive losses. And Trump at the apex of, a pa of his power would not have taken those losses. So I think what ends up happening is as sort of the immediacy of the necessity of devotion to him to like own the libs or stand up for a Republican president against the media or whatever, when the immediate need to sort of defend your own starts to fade, then 
at different times in different ways, people kind of fall away. And it's not so much a turning like, I'm so sorry, I should never have supported him. It's much more of, okay, let's move on. Let's move on. And and that's and that happens. I see it, I see it around me. Now there are people who are still flying Trump flags. There are people who still have Trump trucks. You know, there's still that and you're not going to do anything. They're they're unpersuadable. But different people at different times, when they get different information, again, I'm not looking for somebody to come to my knock on my door and say, David, I was so wrong to support Donald Trump. They're much more likely to say, let's just not do that again. You know, this is interesting. I was thinking about it, uh, this uh, during my conversation on yesterday's podcast with Jonathan Allen from NBC, who wrote about the possibility that Donald Trump is so bored down in Mar-a-Lago and so limited in his impulse control that he might actually announce that he's running in 2024, say next month. So if Donald Trump formally announces, gets back into the race, I wonder how this changes this dynamic. In in a lot of ways, it it, it helps clarify this. It, it it helps you know blow through the denial that he's out there that this could happen. And for those Republicans that are going, okay, so let's give him a gold watch. I don't want to say anything you know bad about him, but I'd like to move on. Once he announces it, it sort of puts a bright spotlight on that choice. How, how do you think that plays? How does that affect this dynamic you're discussing? Yeah, that is a great question, Charlie, because one of the things that I, I constantly think about and is the psychological of effective events is often um, unpredictable. Like I, I did not expect the psychological impact of him beating Hillary to bond him so tightly to previously reluctant yep. Trump voters. Totally not. But it did. You yeah. know that that I watched it happen in real time. Yep. yep. What is this psychological effect of him jumping back in the ring? And here's the question that's more interesting to me: What is the effect of opposition rising up? So, I don't think he'll go unopposed. I don't think it will go unopposed. So what if DeSantis jumps in? What if Pence jumps in or Cotton or you name it? What does that do to the dynamic? Because he's going to attack them and they're going to have to attack back because at least some of them, because if they're, they have a brain in their heads, they will realize that the 2016 primary strategy of not attacking him and hoping that he implodes is a loser, is a loser. So what is the dynamic when he starts to face real resistance in a primary? And that's what I, I don't know. The I don't know the impact. Because the problem is, will he face real resistance? Will DeSantis, yeah. would, would DeSantis actually run against him? I assume that he blinks. Mike Pence, on the other hand, seems to be determined to run. I, I, I don't see a path for him necessarily. But but that obviously creates that dynamic you're talking about. That there would be an alternative. I don't know what Chris Christie is talking about doing, but... This is, of course, the problem in the Republican Party, right, is that you you have all of those ifs. If people stood up to him, if yeah. people criticized yes, him, totally. if people drew a red line, and then no one does because they're all kind of like looking at their shoes and they're looking around going, you go first. Okay, Lindsay, you say something. Or, you know, uh, you know Chuck, you say something. And and, and, no, and nobody does. Uh, yeah. they're, they're hoping that somebody else steps up and does what they are unwilling to do. And this has happened over and over and over again. So I yeah. just don't know. Yeah, that's why I'm extremely interested by what happens next. And if a Maggie Haberman tweet is any indication, um, Trump may be wanting to uh, announce here in the next few months that he's getting back in. And And the big question I have is, 
I know, I know there are people who are hoping to take him on and, and there's a lot of chatter that there are Republicans like a Pence or a DeSantis who have some intention to take him on. But at the same time, you don't know until he's actually in. Right. And you, ha you have to actually face the guy. And part of me wonders if him announcing early is perhaps designed to try to clear the field well, it is while he designed. still has. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the question is whether he will, in fact, clear. It's also the timing is interesting. Now, I mean, I, I we've talked about the impact of the January 6th committee. And I, again, the people who most need to watch it probably won't. But it will be interesting if he does choose to announce around July 4th, and of course we don't know, and I'm completely speculating here, that it would be in the wake of some pretty devastating uh, new information um, about, about his conduct. And one of the things I think he's benefited from, and I, ironically, I think he's benefited from not being on Twitter. I think he's benefited from being, mm -hmm. you know, in splendid isolation down in Mar-a-Lago because there hasn't been the focus. Yeah. And we, what we've seen in the past is that, you know, we, when he's like right in your face is when the numbers seem to drop. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, when he's sitting down there, people can afford to be nostalgic, but suddenly he's back. He's there. You know, when all of this January 6th stuff is fresh in a lot of people's minds and every Republican in the country now will be, you know, asked, what do you think? Do you support him? Would you support him? Do you think it's a good idea? What about this statement that he made? And that does change the dynamic in ways that, as you and I both know, are hard to predict in this modern Republican yeah. uh, party. David French, thank you so much for being generous with your time and coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. I always enjoy it, Charlie. Thanks so much for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.